Hi, um, welcome to the Criminology for You podcast. I'm Helen Price. I'm a graduate criminology student at the University of Cambridge. Um, I'm Becca Lines, and I'm a filmmaker, and I'm looking to make a film about sociopathy. Um, and I'm interested in getting the real tea from Helen Price. Yes. Um, so we're both. Um, we decided to do this podcast because we're both fans of true crime podcasts, mm. but it is a little bit frustrating. Um, they often just say a lot of things that are just factually incorrect and fundamental misunderstandings of kind of criminological theory and psychological theory and things like that. So what we really hope to do with this podcast is um, break down um, the kind of criminological research that can often be very jargony, quite inaccessible. A lot of it's obviously hidden behind paywalls. I approached Helen um, so that I could get her... A perspective on sociopathy grounded in um, academics without having to go through the um, kind of bulk of the research, which can be quite complex and um, difficult to penetrate. Um, and it's kind of hard to find a people who deal with this subject um, in a way that isn't totally, you know, trivial and a little sensationalist. So um, I thought we could do the first episode on um, the kind of difference between psychopaths and sociopaths mm. and some kind of um, typical traits of each, because mm -hmm. this is something that very often gets completely mixed up in um, true crime podcasts and these terms just get thrown around and um, traits get attached to them, which aren't necessarily true. So um, I think it's a really interesting subject. Um, mm. A lot of people are you know, interested in, in psychopaths and sociopaths. I think there's an inherent kind of fascination there. So um, yeah, we're just going to kind of go over some of the traits. Maybe we could start with the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so obviously people really mix them up. Um, and basically the difference is that sociopathy is considered mm -hmm. a little bit less severe. So sociopathy is a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so it can only be diagnosed after the age of 18. Um, but you need to have had certain symptoms since about the age of 15 to be diagnosed. So these symptoms are things like repeatedly violating the law, um, pervasive lying, showing a massive disregard for your own safety and the safety of the people around you, being physically aggressive, being irresponsible, um, and crucially not showing remorse for your actions or, um, you know, kind of understanding their impact and their mm -hmm. emotional impact in particular on, on other people. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the research really indicates that psychopaths are born um but sociopaths are made so sociopathy is often the result of maybe childhood trauma or neglect or physical abuse so unlike psychopaths sociopaths can generally display empathy in in certain situations um in in very limited circumstances and they can form close bonds with perhaps a very small number of people maybe mm. close family members who they've grown up with but this doesn't necessarily mean that the sociopath won't display sociopathic behaviour towards the people to whom they're closely bonded. Mm. So in terms of looking at it from um, from the end of crime, from the end of a criminal activity, um, as a criminologist, is there any clear-cut way to differentiate between the kind of crimes that a, a sociopath and a, a psychopath would commit? Um, so in general... Mm. Um, both psycho, um, psychopathy and sociopathy mm. are very closely correlated with contact with the criminal justice system. So about 90% of um, psychopaths, for example, have already had contact with the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, and 
um, psychopaths and sociopaths collectively make up um, about one or two percent of the um, population, but they make up a much larger um, percentage of the prison population. Yeah. So um, estimates vary depending on like which research yeah. study you look at. But um, it's generally, you know, between 20 um, percent and 40 percent is the estimates. So obviously, they're grossly overrepresented. Yeah. In, um, in prisons and particularly for um, violent crimes. Mm. Um, so um, in general, like there's there's a lot of overlap between the types of crimes that mm -hmm. sociopaths and psychopaths might commit. But um, sociopathy, as it's slightly less severe, it might be um, crimes that perhaps disregard people's emotions and don't recognise the, mm. the impact that those crimes are going to have on other people, but mm -hmm. they're not necessarily... Um, as violent or extreme. Um, so it might be things like um, fraud or, or robbery, mm. um, things like that that really can impact people. Um, mm. But psychopaths um, are more likely to commit um, the, you know, very violent crimes that we all hear about and, um, you know, are, are very shocked by. Um, like psychopaths are responsible for almost all um, sexually motivated murders, for example. Mm -hmm. So I guess my first encounter with the figure of the psychopath was in the film American Psycho. And I think more generally, there seems to be this kind of stereotype of the successful Wall Street guy having elements of sociopathy. Um, and it's it's easy to see how um, those same kind of qualities that would diagnose a, a sociopath might also be um, traits that will make you very successful and driven and determined and um, kind of self-motivation as a positive. Um, where would you find your undercover sociopaths and where would you find your undercover psychopaths and do they have very different domains? Is there truth in the rumour that they are often, you know, these kind of Wall Street shark types? That's a really great question. And a lot of the misconceptions about um, psychopathy arise from um, kind of dominant cultural portrayals of psychopaths, mm. you know, like in American Psycho or um, Silence of the Lambs, things like that. Um, and that's actually one of the really um, common misconceptions about psychopaths, that they are um, all super intelligent. Mm. Um, actually, um, psychopaths um, are, they're mainly, it's, psychopathy is mainly characterised by being exceptionally kind of callous. Mm. Um, and psychopaths in general have pretty much the same spread of intelligence as the general population. Mm -hmm. um, and even a few studies have suggested that the average psychopath might be less intelligent mm. than the average non-psychopath. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a very small number of highly intelligent psychopaths, mm. you know, within the mm. kind of general population. Um, but that obviously does make them a pretty terrifying prospect. Mm. And um, certain research studies have suggested that about 4% of CEOs are psychopaths. So that's about four times higher than the um, percentage of psychopaths that's represented mm. in the general population. Mm. Um, but um, kind of more often than not, um, psychopaths tend to be of you know kind of average intelligence mm. but they just have very grandiose ideas about these amazing things they're going to do mm. but then they get very bored or they're unwilling to put in the um work that's required to achieve those goals um they're often very impulsive they need instant gratification um so they kind of do things without fully thinking about the the medium or long-term consequences and that mm. can make it um, quite difficult for them to be highly successful mm. in the longer term. Mm. So do you think there's good evidence to suggest that um, while there is a normal spread of intelligence, when you get the two qualities of intelligence or even just drive along with this like um, sense of this grandiose um, sense of self um, combined with things like privilege, do you think that's sort of a deadly effective combination for 
CEO? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. I mean, once you um, get kind of all of those um, advantages combined mm. with um, a certain, you know, personality disorder mm. um, or like psychopathy or sociopathy, mm. then, um, you know, that's a, that's a very terrifying prospect, mm. really, isn't it? Um, and that very small minority of people um, tend to be um, kind of disproportionately like represented. You know, I'm sure that um, we've all read a news story about at least at least one today. Mm. Um so, um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think um, there definitely is this kind of cultural fascination with um, these um, these types of people mm. that, you know, that we're describing who are kind of highly intelligent, successful mm. psychopaths. And I think part of that could maybe stem from um, our, our fear of, you know, not being able to control them, but also, mm. you know, our fascination with these people who, who don't have empathy. Like, mm. I think people often... Um, find it really interesting to be position themselves as almost like adjacent to that kind of um, crime and that kind of personality mm. disorder because we're all afraid of of that kind of mm. um, lack of empathy and that kind of callousness mm. um, and obviously you know um, uh, attraction and repulsion are two sides of the same coin really I was they? just about to say is that why so many women write letters to freaks <laughs> We should do a whole other podcast on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting. Like particularly, a lot of the a lot of the um, kind of boom in, in true mm. crime that's going on at the moment is driven by women. Mm. Um, and I think particularly for for women who are, you know, as as women, we're more vulnerable mm. to um, being being the victims of crime and being the victims of violent crime in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sort of um, a lot of people have suggested that perhaps um, listening to true crime podcasts or reading true crime novels or watching, um, you know, television programs like Forensic Files or something is a way for women to um, almost experience um, crime without actually being in danger. Mm. Um, so I think there's some like kind of fascinating reasons um, mm. like behind that. Yeah, you're really roasting all our female listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we love true crime as well, don't we? Oh, so, yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about um, kind of how psychopaths are, are slightly different to sociopaths. Okay, yeah. Um, so um, basically psychopaths have a lot of very similar traits to, mm-hmm. to sociopaths, um, but basically in a, very, in a much more serious form. So mm-hmm. they tend to be um, very narcissistic, um, they lack empathy. They have almost a total inability to to feel guilt and remorse, um, and they're very good at being manipulative mm. um, often. Um, and unlike sociopaths, psychopaths are generally completely unable to form deep emotional attachments to humans. But mm. interestingly, they do often form deep attachments to um, to dogs in mm. particular, um, because dogs tend to offer unconditional affection, um, whereas. Mm. Um, kind of anecdotally like psychopaths tend to mm. not be very interested in cats because cats are too independent which <laughs> right. I think is very interesting mm. um, but um, it's also strange because one very common manifestation mm. of psychopathic behaviour is harming animals from quite right. a young age mm. yeah I was just about to say is that the reason why you hear about so many psychopaths who got their kind of first taste of murder from like cutting off their cat's tail <laughs> that's whenever you hear about a serial killer you know they always like yeah they would be like killing neighborhood cats when they're younger wouldn't they it really is he set a cat on fire <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah that's one of the mm. kind of key manifestations of um of psychopathic behavior in um in like early childhood so mm. um it's you know harming animals mm-hmm. um and um, wetting the bed beyond a normal age, and also being <laughs> uh-huh. quite fascinated with fires mm. and setting things on fire. Mm. Um, and then another um, kind of key um, 
correlated with um, with sociopathic behaviour is um, having a childhood head injury. And, right. you know, we're only kind of beginning to understand in the last maybe 10 years quite how, mm. exactly how harmful having a childhood head mm. injury can be. Um, and it's only really thanks to the to the National Football League, to the NFL, that um, mm. there's more research being done into mm. kind of the impact of head injuries and concussions and repeated concussions and things like that. Mm. Um, but a lot of people who are in um, prison for violent crimes have had... Um, some form of like traumatic head injury mm. in in childhood or early adulthood, mm. but that's quite bringing that having that explanation for it um, must put quite a difficult dilemma on how far we can attribute guilt to, to psychopaths if it's something that is either you know kind of an, an inherent um, difference in the brain akin to autism or something like that. Or, you know, something that is the result of trauma that was not their fault. Can we properly blame them for their actions or is it something we should instead be treating? Mm. That's a really um, big debate in the kind of Mm. criminological world at the moment. um, Because when it comes to um, the degree to which mitigating circumstances are accepted in... in, um, uh, in considering a mm. sentence that someone should have or considering someone's like culpability for a mm. crime they've committed um that's a it's a very controversial topic because um obviously um to a certain extent everyone's going to be quite sympathetic mm. um when um you know if, if they hear that someone who's committed a crime has had a very traumatic childhood um mm. has perhaps been abused themselves or something like that mm-hmm. um but um the extent to which judges mm-hmm. um, and juries will will accept that as um as a mitigating factor is mm-hmm. um is quite limited often there's also a really big debate at the moment about what we should do about children who um display sociopathic um, or psychopathic mm. traits um so as um as we said earlier you can't diagnose sociopathy until after the age of 18 right. um but a lot of children um do display um very kind of concerning behaviours mm. um, early in childhood, you know, like mm. um, harming animals or setting things on fire. Mm. Um, uh, generally, they can often be quite violent to their families. Mm. And obviously, once they get past a certain age, you know, especially mm. once they hit puberty, it can be you know, incredibly difficult mm. for families to, to deal with them. But mm. there's a lot of um, debate over whether we should be... Um, labeling even labeling these traits as psychopathic traits when they're you know manifesting in in children like is that kind of um condemning children is it Mm. labeling them too Mm. early um and certain types of therapy have been quite successful in in treating that Mm. um quite similar to to the treatments and therapies that are recommended for um uh, autistic children Mm. so um you know kind of helping them understand um like everyday behavior and Mm -hmm. um you know kind of accepted reactions to things and you know recognizing body language cues and things like that Mm. um but then there are obviously a few very cynical people who um say that if if someone is like truly a psychopath then that's just um a very effective way of um making them more manipulative because it teaches them to um you know be able to mimic empathy and mm. uh, mimic emotion mm. in a in a very effective way. So a sex offender treatment program um, was actually quite recently discontinued in the UK because they did um, multi year research on it and it was found mm. that the rate of reoffending was actually slightly higher for um, right. people who had gone through the treatment program mm. because they'd learned to just um, uh, they'd learned like the vocabulary to make it seem as if they were making progress, and um, mm. they'd you know shared their stories, and a lot of them kind of got got a kick out of that actually. Mm. Um, I mean, I think something that scares all of us is that we 
have the potential to be unempathetic um, or unwilling to see the impact that we're having on someone Mm. and um, you know those are those are traits that we kind of fear in ourselves Mm. Um, and perhaps that part of that's part of the like fascination essentially if you're thinking right now you know I have I have qualities um, that might make me sociopathic might even make me psychopathic Um, I'm cold I'm detached etc how can you is there a foolproof way to know that you're not a psychopath (laughs) <laughs> so generally the the kind of basic rule is that if you um are worried you mm. might be a psychopath you almost certainly aren't one um mm-hmm. because a psychopath would never mm-hmm. um never worry about that mm-hmm. um i think with with sociopathy it's a bit more complicated mm. so um you know like like we said um a larger percentage of people mm-hmm. um do have certain sociopathic mm. traits but they probably wouldn't be fully diagnosed with um you know sociopathic personality disorder mm. Um, a lot of a lot of the ways people tend to deal with that are things like um, mm. cognitive behavioral therapy um, and um, you know counseling right. um, and and mindfulness. Mm. Um, you know things that can help them recognize their mm. own patterns of thought and their own reactions mm. to certain situations yeah. um, and kind of create new neural pathways that help them deal mm. with those situations in yeah. different ways. And essentially, if that person is concerned about their their interpersonal um feelings i guess they the very fact that they're seeking help and actively working to change those things is kind of half the work done yeah absolutely mm. yeah one of the things that you often hear about psychopaths is that they can um train themselves to uh, beta lie detector test is that true that's something that do- it does annoy me a bit to hear that on um on true crime podcasts because there's you know, no evidence whatsoever that um, psychopaths can can beat lie detector tests. Um, mm. The the spread of results for um, lie detector tests on on psychopaths is broadly similar to the general population. Um, so um, yeah, next time you hear that on on my favorite murder or something, um, it's not true. So I I do have one question. Um, how I have um, an ex who was believed to um, have sociopathic traits in childhood. Um, how can you tell if um, a, a sociopath has been cured and is fit for love or should be avoided at all costs? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. I'm actually quite proud of us that we've made it the whole way through this podcast without, without mentioning our exes because <laughs> there are so many sociopath jokes yeah. to be made about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and another question is, the diff- what's the difference between someone who has narcissistic personality disorder and sociopathy there's a, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of people right. are diagnosed with both mm. um in general the um someone with narcissistic personality disorder um mm. tends to the, the harmful effects that they they have on other people and the kind of harmful things they do to other people um they aren't like actively malicious it's right. more um that they are just mm. so completely self-serving mm. that other people are seen as collateral damage in a way mm. um whereas sociopaths um can be more callous um mm. and they they can do things just for um mm. kind of the hell of it and for um uh the purpose of actually like harming people mm. um but there definitely is a lot of overlap and mm. a lot of people are are diagnosed with both the kind of defining um uh traits of people with narcissistic personality mm. disorder is that they just um really see everyone else as so much less important mm. and you know everyone else is um kind of uh autonomy and mm. an agency and you know wants desires hopes dreams that sort of thing mm. is just um, completely inferior to theirs, um, right. and something that you know mm. their their um, mm. their desires, their their dreams, um, their goals should take precedence mm. over everything else. Mm. Um, so um, often it's said that um, you can kind of tell if you're talking to to a narcissist um, because 
you know when you're having a conversation with someone and you can mm. just kind of tell they're not really listening to what you're saying they're just waiting until it's acceptable for them to start talking about themselves again mm. um, and as I was saying about myself <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. um, you know and every time every time mm. you say something they'll, they'll bring it back to to themselves um, mm. but um, again, again as with as with, as with um, sociopathy um, a, a number of a lot of people have um, kind of narcissistic traits without having full blown narcissistic personality disorder, and mm. and those traits are things that they can work on in in therapy or um, cognitive behavioural therapy or mindfulness mm. and things like that. Um, mm. So there definitely are ways to to mitigate the impact of those traits, and mm-hmm. um, often with narcissists, um, mm. you know, if you think that you might be um, a narcissist, then um, you um, are slightly less likely to, to be a narcissist because mm. um, with, with things like narcissistic personality disorder mm. and borderline personality disorder, one of the quite common um, like manifestations of those are that mm. you, um, even if you're diagnosed with them, you, you kind of refuse to accept that you have them um, mm. and you see um, the diagnosis as um, kind of evidence of like a, a campaign against your people trying to... Um, bring you down or not accept your greatness or people being jealous things like that Mm. so is it possible that a sociopath or a psychopath um would ever receive a diagnosis and consider that a sort of badge of honor a psychopaths um are the kind of psychopaths who would commit like uh, copycat murders are they kind of interested in the lure of the label of psychopath do you think um, I'm not so sure about the lure mm. of um, of psychopath, but they're definitely um, very interested in any kind of label that will give them glory of some mm. sort. So um, what um, you see with um, what you've seen with a number of kind of quite famous serial mm. killers actually is that they um, they they don't want to only have two victims because um, then they'll just be known as like a mass murderer. Um, you know, three victims is the kind of minimum mm. for being a serial number. killer. Mm. The magic number, exactly. Mm. Um, so they will kind of aim to have at least three victims. Mm. Um, and sometimes there there've been cases where um, murderers have even confessed to to murders they yes. didn't commit, yeah. so that they can they can get the label of of a serial killer. Yeah, those are my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> your favorite. Um, so what you see in general is you know mm. kind of very grandiose ideas and people wanting to be um remembered in any way mm. um so um you know in in other cases um with with murderers and serial killers who are um psychopaths they'll um just try and string out the whole process for as long as possible by um pretending that they'll uh tell police that the location of different bodies and mm. things like that that they'll admit to other crimes and then they'll um kind of demure on that and um mm. you know just kind of um uh, increase their notoriety as much as possible. Mm. And the Ian Huntley thing was kind of fascinating as well. Mm. I don't know what you would label him between the two. Um, I mean, probably a psychopath, right? Because mm. he did murder two girls in their birth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the weird thing of um, wanting to be so key to the crime and risking being found out because the kind of attraction of having so much attention on you is is stronger. Yeah, absolutely. We should actually we should do um, mm. another podcast on, on criminal profiling because that's a really yeah. interesting area, and there've been you know, massive advances mm. in that over the last thirty years. Um, but definitely, what you do see with a lot of killers is they they really try and insert themselves into the right. investigation mm. in certain ways. Whether that's um, you know they try and um, help coordinate search efforts, mm. um, they'll you know mm. like give television interviews mm. and newspaper interviews, which is what you saw with Ian Huntley. Yeah. Um, they'll you know return to the scene mm. of the crime, things like that. I think I think you've given me all I need to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just 
A quick fun one. Is there anyone you're willing to out in the <laughs> in, in the public life who you think might qualify? Oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm qualified to give that diagnosis. Um, I mean, again, I could say you know some some of the people some of the people I've dated, um, I th- I think would qualify. Right. Yeah. Um, um, what about you? Um, I mean, surely Trump. <laughs> That's, that's, Surely. That's one for the history book, really, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Time will tell, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps narcissism might be a more applicable diagnosis Yeah, there. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Criminology for You podcast with Becca Lines and me, Helen Price. Um, we look forward to getting back to you soon. Please don't forget to subscribe. Goodbye. <laughs>